preachers teaching and teachers preaching? Uh, no. <laughs> I never got to that last night. Uh, I'm going to wait with that until tonight because that person who asked the question is off teaching some of the younger students. I want to uh, just uh oh this is going to be further testing oh that's that's difficult maybe yeah maybe turning off the lights so we can get rid of can you I, I may have to read these I go back that way a little bit more ah good good thank you uh, see me mechanical things are not important unless you follow them up and then they prevent all the good stuff from happening I was a, a Christian school teacher and a Christian school administrator <clears throat> for some 10 years and then I was a college professor training teachers for uh, about 22 years and I'm still under 40 <laughs> if you believe that you'll believe a lie any day of the week but there are things that uh, you'll remember about school, and one of them is the kinds of excuses that kids came with when they were absent. Uh, please excuse Mary for being absent. She was sick, and I had her shot. <laughs> that wasn't so bad. Please excuse Harriet for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch, and when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. <laughs> they get worse please excuse Ray Friday from school he has very loose vowels please excuse me Excuse Gloria from Jim today. She is administrating. You translate that one. Dear school, please excuse John being absent on January 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and also 32. <laughs> The last one is almost too vulgar to, to print, but please excuse Tom for being absent yesterday. He had diarrhea and his boots leak. <laughs> Enough of that. Having a sense of humor uh, is helpful if you're a teacher. You need it every once in a while, about three times a day. If you have your outlines with you, it's time to get serious. We need to talk about something that is heavy and dull and abstract and confusing. Philosophy. 
Do any of you know a philosopher? Yes, you do? Do you know him? Not heavy and dull? No. Uh, just one philosopher? Oh, 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 Emmanuel, you are so... <laughs> you caught that one, didn't you? Yes, yes. With all the doctors, how many doctors are there in the house? There are all kinds of people. Doctor, doctor, Dr. Sanchez, Dr. Garrison, Dr. OPC attracts doctors. I know, OPC attracts the intelligentsia. That's good. But... Uh, I, I entitle this one, this second session, Do We Dare to Talk Philosophy? When you think of uh, philosophers, you tend to think of a certain kind of uh, person. Uh, it's usually a man. Usually has real frumpy, ruffled hair that points in 16 different directions. Usually has a big beard, also unkempt and used to, in the days when it was correct, used to have a big curvy pipe and it gurgled and guttered its way <laughs> up and down the sidewalks. Uh, philosophers were a breed apart. Scientists, you know, are always very neat and tidy, uh, like Larry, and uh, <laughs> they always wear white coats and they used to have you know, calculators in their pockets and they were always doing mathematical formulas and all that stuff. That's, that's a myth. Those are images that we have. I want to suggest this morning that every one of us here is a philosopher. You may not think of yourself as a philosopher, but I want you to start thinking of yourself as a philosopher. I want you also, before the end of the week, to think of yourself as a scientist. It isn't only those that have PhDs in botany or in chemistry or in astrophysics that are scientists. I would argue, on the basis of scripture, on the basis of my reformed perspective, that every one of us here is a scientist, and every one of us also is a philosopher. Now, I have some formal training in philosophy. My degree is in philosophy, and I may differ from you only in the fact that I am a professional philosopher, whereas you maybe are not a professional philosopher, but you might be very good amateur philosophers. Just like Larry McHarg is a professional scientist in the natural scientists or natural sciences, so you and I might be very good amateur scientists also in the area of nature. The difference between a professional and an amateur is in pay. <coughs> yeah, really. Yeah. The difference is only in pay. 
The professional has the kinds of credentials, the kinds of experience and background, so that somebody is willing to pay him to do that work and pay him to go around telling us, the amateurs, how to do it. The amateur doesn't get paid for doing that particular kind of work. Philosophy, like science, like education, has a basic core meaning. Last night I tried to get you to think about the basic meaning of education. And I offered you a definition of that. Before the week is out, I also hope to offer you a definition of science, one that I think is meaningful, workable, and will be verified by good dictionaries. This morning, I want to have you think about a definition of philosophy. If you go back to the Greek, philo is love. Sophy is wisdom. Basically, philosophy is nothing more than a love of wisdom. In your notes, philosophy is a love of wisdom. And I would hope and pray that every one of us loves wisdom and wants to be characterized as a wise person. Ultimately, it's going to become very apparent at the Judgment Day that there are only two classes of people in all of the world. The wise and the foolish. That's all. And the great judge of the universe is going to say at the end of the age, I'll send my angels, and their job is to take the wise to glory and to bring the foolish where they belong, to hell. There are no other classifications. During this life, during our walk here, we are hopefully moving more and more into the ways of wisdom. As soon as I define philosophy as the love of wisdom, I confront you with another question. We're not done when we say that. What is wisdom? <laughs> yeah, what is the wisdom? <coughs> what is it? Yes? Well, I have one to answer it sort of in the, in the negative is somebody from the back there when, when you said what is philosophy you said you know, philo is love and the sophie is wisdom and there was a comment from the back of the book of, uh, that said the word knowledge and to distinguish between knowledge and wisdom is important in defining your terms as opposed to the love of wisdom and the love of knowledge are sort of two different things that the world uh, oftentimes confuses in terms of Okay. There's a distinction between love of wisdom and love of knowledge. 
just like your education, you know, the distinction between, uh, yeah, education and schooling. Uh, one is, uh, you know, they, they, again, sometimes interchange. We need to push that a little bit. I would say that wisdom is not equated with knowledge. You can't simply equate the two. There is a distinction. Yes? Wisdom is the opposite of foolishness. Uh, yes. Agreed. Now, what's foolishness? Everything that's not wise. <laughs> 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 ah, we're going in a nice circle. Right. Good circular definition. Yes, sir. Uh, oh man, everybody wants to jump in. Uh, Jennings, Robin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, uh, Peggy. Oh, now you got two elements. Ah, yes. Uh, way in the back there. Oh. Uh, excuse me, just a minute. Okay, a proper application of what God has entrusted to us. Peggy had said that wisdom is knowing right from wrong and being able to do it. Doing the right. Knowing the right and doing. Both of those are essential. Wisdom is, let me define it this way. Wisdom is knowing the truth. Not falsehood now. But knowing the truth and daring to live according to it. Or applying the truth and walking according to the truth. That's what wisdom is, I think. There are a couple of passages in Scripture that I want to have you reflect on. I said last night that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is probably the one key passage that I would cite if I had to identify one passage that has most influenced my thinking. But if you go to the book of Proverbs, there is a tremendous amount here in the book of Proverbs that has to do with wisdom and the love of wisdom. Let me have you turn to Proverbs 1, beginning at verse 1. Proverbs chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Listen to these words from God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of 
knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. I'm reading from the NIV. Turn also to Proverbs 2. I want to read there the first 11 verses of Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair every good path for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you and then also turn to Proverbs 4 beginning at verse 5 get wisdom get understanding do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a, a crown of splendor. God's word is full of discussion about wisdom. And God keeps saying to us, get wisdom, strive for it, work for it. We have a responsibility. It comes as a gift from God. That's very emphatically taught in God's word. But God also says, you and I have responsibilities, and we have to strive for it. We can't be lazy. We can't be sluggards. We have to work to get wisdom. Now, philosophy then can legitimately be defined as a love of wisdom. And everyone who loves wisdom then can legitimately be called a philosopher. So all we're doing is taking that noun and changing its form to embrace people. All of us hopefully have that kind of pursuit. But philosophy has another dimension to it. And now let me move to the blackboard for a minute. Should I take this along?
this is dangerous minefield up here. We can also and must also talk about philosophy as a set of ideas. When we're talking about knowledge, when we're talking about truth, we are also dealing with ideas. And I tried to emphasize last night that we want to have true knowledge. And we don't want to be foolish. We don't want to have false ideas. So we have to make some clear distinction between truth and falsehood. Let me show you how this might be illustrated. On this overhead, I define wisdom there as knowing the truth and living in accord with it. But now, we have to define truth. If you have read some of the philosophers like Plato, or Aristotle, or Descartes, or Kant, or whoever, they are always struggling with the question of what is truth. And frequently, they also struggle with the question of, what is falsehood? And I'm simply going to offer you a very biblical answer. Truth is the Word of God. And Jesus Christ is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. And John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you want to know the truth, you have to go to God. The one who made this world, the one who created it from nothing, the one who upholds and governs and directs this world, this universe, you go to God to determine what is true. But then you ask, what is falsehood? What is foolishness? And I'm suggesting here for you an answer that may at first seem quite simplistic. I'm simply saying that the truth is the Word of God, it is Jesus Christ incarnate, and that all propositions, all ideas that are in harmony with the Word of God are true. But I'm also saying that falsehood is a distortion or perversion of the truth. Falsehood or foolishness is taking the truth of God and twisting it ever so slightly. And it doesn't have to be a radical twisting. When Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan was extremely clever. Satan is described by Jesus there in John 8, uh, 44, 45, and those verses surrounding that, as the father of lies a liar from the beginning 
And a liar is one who just twists the truth enough to get you going off in a different direction. That's all it takes. Just a slight twisting. All of us are by nature liars. Sorry. I, I hate to say that. But I say, all of us by nature are liars. Our kids, those little cherubs that come into our homes, by nature are liars. They have to be transformed so that they become truth bearers, truth lovers. But And they can find such clever ways to lie. I didn't do it. Billy did it. Uh, they come home from school and they say, Mom, look, I got an A in my spelling test. And tucked away in their back pocket, folded up 42 times is the F they got on their geography test. They're not telling the whole truth, nothing but the truth. They are only telling what they think will get them in favor with mom and dad. And you say, is that the whole truth? Is that all the papers you got today? Uh, yeah, I think so. And then you do the wash, and lo and behold, here comes another one out of the pocket. Uh, the little liar. Sorry about that. We, we find ways to distort and twist the truth so that it doesn't hurt us. So that, because the truth sometimes hurts. Now, philosophers, most philosophers don't define it this way. You aren't going to go to a standard secular book on philosophy at college or university and find them offering this kind of definition. They like to lie by saying that God has nothing to do with truth. God and the Bible are irrelevant to our academic discussions. That's a lie. That's a bold, bald-faced lie. God has everything to do with truth and falsehood. But now, we got to move on. There are thousands of books full of ideas about education. I'm giving you just the front page of a very small little book that uh, came out, I believe, in 1940s, right? Short, I believe it was shortly after World War II. This little book was judged recently by secular educators to be the one most influential book in their thinking. This is the one book from which they have gotten most of their fundamental ideas. And this particular author a man by the name of Ralph W. Tyler, and it's, the book is entitled Basic Principles of Curriculum and Instruction. Oh, you recognize this? Yes. Some of you, 
Do any of you know anything about OBE? Objective-based education? Outcomes-based? Either way. Originally it was objectives-based. It's been modified recently. Outcome-based education. This man is the guru behind that movement. And most secular educators are saying this man is the most influential writer in all of their experience. And he starts out by saying, in his introduction, the rationale developed here begins with identifying four fundamental questions. Uh, yeah, I wish I could somehow... Let me back out of the way. The rationale developed here begins with identifying four fundamental questions which must be answered in developing any curriculum and plan of instruction. These are, number one, what educational purposes should the school seek to attain? Number two, what educational experiences can be provided that are likely to attain these principles? Number three, how can these educational experiences be effectively organized? And number four, how can we determine whether these purposes are being attained? This book suggests methods for studying these questions. No attempt is made to answer these questions, since the answers will vary to some extent from one level to another, etc., etc. The questions that he's asking, these four questions, are very significant, very important questions. And if you are going to have a philosophy of education that is complete, that is coherent, that is dealing with issues, you must at least ask these four questions. So on that score, I say, Ralph Tyler, you are being helpful. But now don't jump to the conclusion, just because I think Tyler is helpful, that therefore I'm a fan of OBE. I'm not. I'm very, very critical of OBE. There are some fundamental questions that he is totally ignoring. He's absolutely refusing to address. Anybody recognize what they are? What? What attempt is made? None. None? Okay, but that's not, I'm saying there are other questions that he hasn't even asked, that he should be asking. Yes? There's, there's no foundation laid. He's allowing whoever wants to answer the question to answer the question in their own mind, for themselves. Okay, he's saying there is no foundation laid. He is simply allowing whoever asks the question to make the foundation themselves, to choose their own. But 
we're going to deal with this later this morning. Uh, we're going to come back to it again. Does he have a foundation? No. Ah, don't know me so quick to jump. Yeah. Rollins. The presupposition behind the question is there is no objective truth. Ah. And the object of education is pragmatic. Ah, do you all hear that? The what was that funny word you start? The presupposition is? Are you a Ventilian? <laughs> Amen. 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 Uh, there are some fundamental presuppositions here that he is not allowing you to look at. And he doesn't want to have those exposed. Yes, sir. Well, you could almost read that into the first question, you know, what educational purpose is. So it all depends on how you describe your purpose. If your purpose is to preach the truth or to preach the right presuppositions, that could be read into the first point there. You have to read a lot into that, though. Right, you know. but I'm just saying that the purpose is vague. Oh, yes. But now... He, he has purposes. He oh, of course he does. A whole bag full of them. <laughs> There's a whole bag full of them. But he's not telling you what they are. He's saying, though, here's where you start, folks. We want to have the basis. We want to have everything built on outcomes. It's outcome-based education. Or it's objective-based education. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, Ralph, but you are lying. You are telling us a bold lie. There is something underneath this. What are you assuming? There's a whole batch of assumptions underneath that. Yes, Larry? I think the assumption is made there's no total depravity. You've got a blank sheet, essentially, to work in forming you with. Okay. You are saying there's an assumption here that there's no total depravity, that the child is simply a blank sheet. Yes, he's making that assumption. And he's simply assuming that the child that we're going to educate comes into the world as a blank slate. He, he starts out with those kinds of basic presuppositions. You, Roland, also said that there is, you, he's assuming, there's a presupposition that there was no objective truth. objective truth. Everything is subjective. Everything depends on me. See, this man is a thoroughgoing secular humanist. He's secular in that he's saying God has no relevance to the subject, and he's a humanist and say that you and I are the ultimate determiners of what's right and wrong, of what's good and what's bad. That's all. That's humanism. Nothing beyond that. Nothing beneath that. I'm saying we must deal with those assumptions that he's trying to hide. If we're going to have a set of ideas we're going to have to deal with more questions. It's going to have to be more complex, more profound than Ralph Tyler or any of his ilk is willing to admit. Now, let me say a couple of other things about these sets of ideas. When we talk about ideas, when we talk about all being philosophers of education, 
I am not going to insist that everyone be completely and thoroughly articulate about these. I would hope that gradually, as you young men grow up, that you will become more and more articulate so that when you are asked, why send kids to a Christian school, you can give them a good, profound, convincing answer. I don't expect that yet. I would hope that parents, though, would gradually become more and more articulate with these ideas so that you could express those convictions in such a way that you could persuade other people. Hopefully during this week I can give you some of those tools and some handles that you can take home and use. Another characteristic here of these sets of ideas Hopefully it'll be articulate. Hopefully they will be consistent, internally consistent. Sometimes I'm amazed that people can have sets of ideas which are totally contradictory to each other. See, how can you do that? <laughs> you know, you just argued against yourself. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You thoroughly contradicted yourself. That's wrong. Hopefully, as we develop these ideas, as we sharpen them, as we learn to articulate them, that we will find that they are thoroughly consistent with each other, that they all hang together and they don't contradict each other. Now, I'm also going to suggest and encourage that as you develop your ideas about Christian education, that you organize them in a logical fashion. Sometimes people have ideas about education and they spend far too much time on one set of ideas that have all kinds of presuppositions that need to be addressed first. If we can organize our ideas about education in such a way that we progress logically from one to the next, I think we'll have greater potential for being effective, for being convincing apologists for education. Let me put on another overhead to show that. There are literally thousands of questions you can ask about education. If you go to any library, you'll find thousands and thousands of books, and all of them are slightly different because they're all asking questions in a slightly different way or fashion. What I'm suggesting here with these A through F is that these are some categories of questions. And what I suggest that we have to do is to take questions and put them into categories so that we don't end up with a thousand different individual ones and try to organize them, that would be impossible. If we can take our ideas and say, well, this idea is basically the same as that one, 
And that idea is basically the same as that one, just like the paraphrase of it. Now we can lump them into categories and we can be organizing categories in smaller numbers. That's what I'm trying to do here. A. We can ask questions like this. What should be taught in grade 2? Or what should be taught in grade 7? What are the most important objectives that we have for children who are age 5 through 6? Or what are the most important objectives that we have for all children, irrespective of age? We could ask, what is the primary function of schools? And then we could lump in there that same category, the first question and answer of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Oh, yeah. Do hear it again? Let's say it in unison. To, in, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief function of man. Man is there generic for all ages, for both genders. Therefore, logically, that's also the chief end of children in third grade. Logically? That follow? The chief end or the chief purpose of children in the third grade or in the seventh grade or in the twelfth grade or whatever is to glorify God. That's the highest function, purpose we could possibly have. Whether they're sitting in school, whether they're in the kitchen helping with the dishes, whether they're in church, whether they're in catechism class, the chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's one kind of question. Second category, should schools be run by churches? And some of you will say, no, 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 emphatically. Maybe you're right. I wouldn't make a big case of it. Our brothers in the PCA would answer quite differently than our, all of us in the OPC. The PCA is very comfortable with church-run schools. I'm not going to quarrel with them. I'm not going to wage a fight over that. There's some justification for that. Should the state run the school? Should we have all public schools run by the state? Well, you may want to get into a fight about that, but I'm not going to. Do teachers function in local parentis? That's a kind of question you can put in that category. Or you can go on. Another set of questions. What are students like? Are kids collections of parts or are they organic wholes? Are all children essentially the same? Are all kids sinners? Are you guys sinners? One says yes and one says no. We've got to talk. <laughs> I'm just having a little fun with it, just to make sure that it's sharp. Let me ask another. Are you both saints? Yes and yes. Yes. They're both sinners and they're both saints. Now, is that contradictory? Nope. Not if you understand the justification of faith. By grace alone. Mm -mm. But would a public school ever ask questions like that? 
does Ralph Tyler ever ask questions about the nature of kids? Is that an important question? Should you, with David and Psalm 8, say, What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? You have made him a little lower than the angels? Wow. Are all of the kids who come into the world God's children? Well, are they God's creations? Yes. Does he adopt all of them? No. You got your theology straight. I, I know you do. I'll, but those are very important questions. We must ask questions about the nature of kids, about the nature of the educand, the one that we're trying to educate. What are these kids like? What are their fundamental characteristics as they come to us? Or is that irrelevant? Doesn't make any difference. Oh, it makes a ton of difference the way you educate. But there are other questions. There are all kinds of questions about the quality of our schools. How good or bad are our schools? Should teacher X be rehired or should teacher X be fired? Same kind of question. Are students learning what achieving the purposes we set out to accomplish? Those questions can all be put into a category, into a bag. I'll move on. What is the best method for teaching mathematics? Is it the modern math method or is it the old drill method? Well, and you can argue and go back and forth. You can ask questions about phonics, about sight sound, about whole language, and you can get into all kinds of discussions about those methodologies. But that's a bag of questions we'll call methodology. But then you have to ask other questions. Who is the author of that set of recommendations? Where do those recommendations come from? Trace them back. Where are you getting your fundamental answers? By what authority do you make those demands? Same type of question. To whom do you go for advice? When you're pushed into a corner and you have to defend yourself, whom do you quote? Where do you go? Those are all questions of the same type. Now what I'm saying is that if we're going to have a set of ideas that is going to be articulate and coherent and consistent, we're going to have to take these and we're going to have to organize them into some kind of system. That set of ideas has to be structured. And we're going to try to do that right after the break. Right now it's 10.31. Thank you. Let's have a break. <laughs>